Time and again, the world bears witness to truths seldom said. Lend an ear. We promise enlightened, informed conversation. My name is Robert, and this is Seldom Said, the place where conversation matters. Welcome back. A bit of a Renaissance guest today, a gentleman who uh, has been involved in film editing, a little bit of everything. And as he himself just recently said, if nothing else, he can fix things, and he certainly can. Mr. Lawrence Jordan, Larry. Welcome to Seldom Said, Larry. Thanks, Bob. Good to be here. I wonder if we can initially start with a bit of personal background, who you are, where you've been, and what's brought you to this time and place. Well, um, you know, I, I grew up in a, in a uh, filmmaking family. Uh, my grandfather was a projectionist in the Nickelodeon days, and my father uh, went on to become a, uh, a film editor and a, and a commercial director And uh, uh, back in the 60s. And uh, in 1974, we moved out to California. My father was looking for a sort of a change of, uh, a change of scenery, so to speak. <clears throat> Pardon me. Yes, uh, and um, at around age 19, I decided I, I also wanted to be a film editor. I really loved movies and, uh, and television as a kid growing up. And uh, I, took, uh, I took every opportunity I could to, uh, to try to get in the business. And, uh, you know, through uh, a network of connections and uh, relationships, I worked my way up from uh, from a low man on the totem pole as a driver, uh, and um, and uh, I, I eventually got into a rotation where I was working in feature films and uh, on 35 millimeter film, and I did that for about 10 years. Uh, when the digital revolution came along, uh, I was sort of like at the right place at the right time. And I saw a product called the Avid Media Composer, which was a Macintosh-based digital editing uh, software hardware product. And uh, I, I completely immersed myself in it and uh, became sort of one of the first experts. And that really helped my career take off. And, uh, and since then, I've been really into, uh, you know, uh, digital technology, business uh, perspective and I've developed a couple of websites and uh, products like that and uh, here we are today I'm finishing probably my 45th or 46th project uh, it's a feature film for Netflix called Sex Tuplets which will be released on August 16th and uh, I'm actually driving right now to uh, help finish the final mix sound mix that's marvelous there is a statement supposedly attributed to Robert Oppenheimer, who worked on the bomb. He said that, in a sense, being an expert on something that is innovative requires you to be innovative in and of yourself. Do you feel that you created a new path while following an old one? You know, that's really well put, and I and I definitely think uh, that I, I helped to do that with, with, obviously, other people who were kind of in a similar place and time, we, we took the, the film uh, paradigm, the filmmaking uh, post-production paradigm that had existed for about 70-some-odd years, and we adapted that to the digital paradigm and helped create the digital paradigm, um, which, which we used 
which we continue to use today, I, I think that um, as we get deeper into it, we're about, you know, we're about 25 years into it in, uh, in professional filmmaking and, in, in, you know, the, the large post-production centers like Los Angeles and New York and elsewhere. So it's starting to evolve. And some of the film metaphors are fading away with time. But still, that basic foundation that we sort of transformed from 35-millimeter film, 16-millimeter film, have created this, this pattern or workflow that we, that we do use today. Have you found any way to recapture those films that are classics and move them onto your new process? Hmm. I, I think we're in a, in a very uh, changing industry uh, with the advent of streaming media and uh, the fact that the motion picture studios are making less films these days. They're making more big budget tentpole films, they call them. Uh, and uh, whereas the studios used to make uh, 24, 26 pictures each year, they're, they're down to uh, 10 or 12. So um, I think that it's becoming much more commoditized, uh, so to speak. I, I think that there is still a place for independent films and fresh voices and you know, artistic films, so to speak. But I think that we're, we're sort of moving into a much more commercial space where, you know, the product and the ancillary products and the franchise products from those films are, are really taking uh, center stage and, and sort of predominating in, in the motion picture industry. Now, having said that, I think there's a lot of creative things happening, you know, I think some of the streaming companies are really providing a lot of opportunities for, uh, you know, again, independent voices and, and, and fresh voices, the Amazons and the Netflixes, uh, HBO even. Uh, but those are streaming platforms. They're not theatrical platforms. How would you separate one from the other for the layman and the listening audience? Well, uh, Simply put, uh, theatrical platforms are, 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 you know, movie theaters and uh, IMAX theaters and, and places like that. You know, auditoriums where you you know several hundred people will gather and 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 watch a film and experience it together at the same time. Streaming platforms are are you know uh, are through the internet and uh, you can. You can watch them anywhere from your television set at home to your iPad to your phone. So, um, for example, we're making a feature film right now that will never be uh, screened theatrically. However, it will be released in a hundred and I think ninety countries simultaneously, and uh, people will watch it on on everything from again, you know, their television sh sets to their desktop computers to their phones. So, uh, you know, it's, it's truly a, a, you know, a different experience than the theatrical or movie theater experience. Do you feel there's any inherent danger that the streaming process 
could eventually become just another variation of reality TV with every man an actor, every man a director, every projection of film? Huh, that's, that's a really good question. Um, I, I don't know if danger is the word, although there, there might be uh, inherent danger in it. Uh, I think that we are um, entering a period of time where everyone can create their own television network, so to speak, uh, that being a YouTube channel or an Instagram channel. Um, I, I, I see more positives out of it than negatives, but I, I certainly am not um, blind to the fact uh, that there are many negatives and, um, and nefarious uh, sort of entities out there that want to um, promote and propagandize their own kind of information uh, that, that could be inherently dangerous. And... Um, I think we have to be aware of that and have to be careful, but it's, it's awful tough. You know, these, these companies, you know, are, are huge, you know, behemoths, they're, you know, global corporations and, and, you know, they don't necessarily listen to uh, the concerns of, of people and even governments so easily. So I, I think it's something we have to be vigilant about. Perhaps this is a continuation of that question, Larry, do you feel that uh, 2019 is a time where, let us say for the purpose of argument, an Orson Welles can promulgate his own innovation? I think that anyone with the kind of talent that Mr. Wells had when he made a film like Citizen Kane or The Third Man even can have their voice heard. Uh, even if they have no money, and no budget, and, uh, and, and, and really uh, are out there making the film, and pardon if you think this is uh, hyperbole, but even if they're making the film with an iPhone, if they've got a unique story that resonates with the mass audience, uh, the, the distribution uh, networks will find them, and they will um, try to capitalize and monetize that property. So I think, uh, you know, the digital revolution, so to speak, has, has enabled many, many more people with creativity, talent, and, and a story to tell to, um, to have that heard. But, you know, um, that's, that's a, not an easy task, and not that many people have that kind of talent or the fortitude to have it, uh, to get it out there. It's really hard work to make a film, and it's really hard work to um, have it seen. Uh, so, um, you know, that's really the challenge, talent and uh, tenaciousness. But I do think, uh, in, in answer to your question, that if someone like a, like a Wells was, was out there making a film in his garage today or her garage today, uh, they, could, they could get it out there. Your enthusiasm for the industry is evident, uh, Larry. Uh, I'm wondering if you can point back to a moment, an epiphanal moment, that Damascus moment, where you just said, ah, this is where I want to go, this is the direction I want to pursue for the rest of my life. Is there something that stands out in your mind? 
Yeah, absolutely. You know, I've been asked this question before, and um, you know, when I was younger, I was um, I was enamored with photography, and uh, and I'm talking really young, like from the time I was about ten or eleven years old, and I started playing with it and shooting a lot of pictures, and then I got into the technical end of the darkroom and developing and processing. Uh, and was very fascinated by that. So uh, initially, I thought I wanted to be a cinematographer. Um, but even with a father who um, worked in the industry and all the connections we had, the, the Cinematographers Guild uh, was a very, very difficult nut to crack. Um, so, uh, you know, I also loved editing. And, um, you know, I had taken a job at a camera rental house, and I was sort of, you know, just, just wondering what, what might come of, of, you know, the future. And I, and I went and saw a movie called Apocalypse Now at the Cinerama Dome. It was the midnight show and it was in two, three, five widescreen. Uh, it must've been over a hundred feet across the screen. And, uh, you know, that movie really um, uh, affected me and it really moved me. And, um, you know, uh, I, I thought after coming out of that theater that night that that must be a fantastic way to spend your time to create something like that. You know, and those, those folks, they worked on it over three years and, you know, the director had such a, such a brilliant vision and, and, and thing to say about, about war and, and things like that. I just thought what a, what an amazing uh, combination of, of art and, and politics and, um, you know, uh, the technical things that I love to do. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was the moment after that. I was just, um, I'm going to do everything I can to, uh, utilize all my resources to become a feature film editor, not just an editor, because there's all kinds of different editors. There's commercial editors and sports editors and promo editors I wanted to be a feature film editor and it's a pretty, it's a pretty small group like cinematographers. Uh, and it really took a lot of work, even though I had contacts to kind of forge a path in that, uh, in that direction. What advice then would you give to that person who is reflective of yourself in the listening audience comes home from a film, has the moment sitting in his living room, thinking about tomorrow what is that initial advice you would give him or her? Well, you know, there's there's a couple of factors. I mean, you know, if it was a kid who just uh, saw one of the uh, Avengers movies and, you know, uh, he or she was 12 years old and wanted to become a, a filmmaker, I would say start making films. But if it was a person who has just graduated from a film program or school of some sort, uh, and, and sort of narrowed it down at this point and, and decided they wanted to be in one of the specific crafts like film editing or cinematography or, you know, uh, directing, I would say, um, I would say prepare for the challenges because, uh, it's a very competitive field. All the fields I just mentioned, they're very, very competitive, However, if you have a dream to do it, I would say stick with it and don't expect it to happen overnight, but stick with it. 
persistence is what pays off in our industry to a great extent uh, from, from what I've seen. People who have continued to do what they do, whether they get uh, the kinds of projects, <laughs> excuse me, the kinds of projects that they envision themselves working on or want to work on, they might not get those kinds of projects for a long time. They may be stuck in some sort of, maybe maybe if they, let's say, for example, they want to become a film editor, they want to be a feature film editor, their first job is in reality TV, and they're stuck in reality TV, and they don't like doing that. <laughs> but stick with it and continue to grow your network and attend industry events and learn as much as you can about film, filmmaking, editing, art, psychology, all of these things are helpful as a film editor, let's say, even a, you know, a cinematographer, you, it's really, you know, filmmaking is really a, a study of the human condition on a, on a fundamental level. And, uh, I, I really say, don't quit unless you're absolutely sure that, uh, you know, you're sick of it and you just don't want to deal with, uh, the politics and, uh, you know, the chicanery that goes on in our industry. But if you really love films, I think you're going to keep doing it. I, I would say stick with it. Larry, we're about to enter into our first station break. When you spoke of those events that you just described, sticking with it, and you talked about being a photographer, John Ford was once allegedly asked the same question I just posited to you, and his response was cryptic. He just said, look for the horizon. When you want to judge a scene, look for the horizon. Where is it? He seemed like a photographer who became a filmmaker. And I was wondering if you can correlate those two art forms when we come back. We'll be back in a moment. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit wcwp.org. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. And we're back. This is Seldom Said. My name is Robert. This is the place where conversation matters. Guest Larry Jordan who is an expert on all those things placed on a screen that were an excuse for popcorn. Larry, I wonder if you could respond to that question I posed to you before the break. You started as a photographer. They are motion pictures. Do you find the art of photography? As Apocalypse Now really exemplified, the film is a collection of scenes that stay in your mind. Do you find that art form being delineated and diluted? Uh, make that clearer for me. Do I find the photographic art form being dil diluted or the motion picture art form being diluted? The graphic art form, the picture itself, lending itself to motion, but initially being a set scene. I am a really connected in my own mind to those John Ford Westerns where you had a tableau, you had a scene, and actors were placed in it. It does not seem to be the case with many films now. Apocalypse Now struck me as that type of film. The director, Coppola, had some marvelous set-piece scenes. Do you find that a rarity? Uh, 
yes, I do find it a rarity. I, uh, you know, when you asked that question or when you were talking about that just now, I was thinking about Lawrence of Arabia or, you know, or Bridge Over River Kwai. We're talking about these epic films that had these amazing uh, vistas and, and, and amazing cinematography. Uh, but I really think that there are two different kinds of, you know, art forms that, that sometimes have the same effect. Uh, I, I think that in answer to your direct question is, is, yeah, I, I, I don't think we're seeing those kinds of visions as much anymore. I mean, occasionally, You'll get a film like uh, Roma from last year, uh, and that had amazing cinematography. Uh, but the epic films of of like the fifties and and even earlier with John Ford and and those kinds of directors, I don't think they tell as many of those stories anymore. I mean, you know, it's rare uh, that they'll give a director that kind of, you know, those kinds of resources. I mean, Christopher Nolan will get that if he wants it. Ridley Scott will get it. Uh, you know, th you know, people like that, but, but those are few and far between. I guess, I guess it's always been that way. Um, so maybe I'm, I'm, you know, mistaken, but, uh, uh, I, I think, like I said, we see a lot more kind of commercial material. Uh, the big vistas are are set in, um, you know, manufactured CGI worlds with superheroes, and uh, and they're they're more, uh, you know, apt to be comic book tableaus as opposed to, uh, uh, you know, tableaus of the natural world. Would you tend to posit then, Larry, that television might be the wave of the future in that this alleged golden age of television, which was the 50s, could be transposed into the present day and programs about people, feelings, and conversations could be paramount again? Uh, well, in a word, yes. I, I think that's exactly what's happening. I think that uh, television is is the place for more uh, more basic human drama. Uh, I think a lot of people who previously worked in feature films or currently work in feature films uh, are getting opportunities or are being asked to create material for the streaming networks, television. Uh, because there's such a huge, voracious appetite for content. And, um, you know, a lot of good content is being created. A lot of, a lot of people who might not have had the opportunity to create television content for the, you know, the three major networks, as it were, uh, are now having a lot more luck having their material made uh, for like I said before, the streaming networks, uh, Amazon or, uh, or Netflix, Hulu, and uh, now, of course, Disney will have a, a big network, uh, streaming network that we can subscribe to. 
so yeah, uh, television seems to be the place to be for a lot of people. Much of what you've described seems to infer an innate sense of self-awareness. Curious about the traits that you feel are necessities for entrance into this field, the traits, characteristics, and the skills. In point of fact, have you seen a scene in your mind before you edited it? Yeah, I'd say so. I mean, I think I, I've seen the scene in my mind when I when I read it in the script. Um, of course, <laughs> when you get the, the material delivered to you, uh, it's always uh, a surprise, and uh, sometimes it's a it's a great and nice surprise, and other times it's a it's a letdown. Uh, so, but but you know, those are the choices that the director makes, and. Uh, and we we work with what we're we work, we work with the palette that we're given as editors. Um, I think uh, film editing uh, is it, you know consists of of, of three uh, sides of a triangle, which would be um, creativity, uh, technical knowledge, and the ability to uh, deal with other creative people diplomatically or politically, uh, as, as however you might want to term it. Um, I think the requirements uh, for being a film editor, uh, a good film editor, are, um, you know, a good story sense, uh, sort of, for starters. You know, and, and, and that doesn't really have to be anything that complicated. We're really only dealing in, in 90 minute or, or 120 minute segments sometimes, sometimes longer, but generally films are about between 90 and 120 minutes. So you want to know where the story's, you know, engaging and, and less engaging and uh, maybe tonally appropriate or inappropriate and, you know, and then what you're doing is you're really diving into, uh, you know, performances to look for authenticity from an actor. Uh, you know, you, you, you really want to um, know where that, you know, that real human condition, whether it be telling a joke or, or a dramatic scene, uh, is, is really resonating with the audience. And as a film editor, you're the first audience. You're you're the you're the first person to see that film and say, um, "Wow, that was a lousy performance," or "Boy, I really dislike that." So I think I think uh, you know one of my mentors, the great editor Dee Dee Allen, said that you know being a film editor really you know uh, it takes uh, you know it, it, it's good to have good taste. So, so uh, you know it's just a matter of. of of looking at the material and, and deciding what you think is, is best. And sometimes that's instinctual. Sometimes that's more intellectual. Uh, but I also think that, you know, uh, an appreciation of, of the, of the other arts of, of photography, of cinematography, I think a basic understanding of human psychology is important. Um, and I think that, uh, you know, a point of view is important you know, a, a perspective from, you know, of what you think on the, on the material 
or about the material uh, is also helpful. All of these things uh, can contribute to becoming a, a good editor. Uh, Dustin Hoffman often referred to beginning his career and meeting Laurence Olivier and asking Olivier, how do I act? And the response was, simply do it, dear boy, simply do it. You've mentioned that film school is not an imperative. Why not? And do you feel that experientially, the answer is to simply do it, air a thousand and one times, but hopefully there's that thousand and second. Yeah. Um, I mean, I would think short of things like brain surgery or... or um, or, or very highly technical uh, scientific fields, you could probably teach yourself anything. Uh, you know, film making, film editing, it, it's a creative endeavor. And if you tinker around long enough in your, in your little workshop, uh, you're going to pick up a few things, particularly today with, with the, the resources available to filmmakers. I mean, like I said earlier, People have made films on iPhones that have been distributed uh, widely. So you can really start making uh, a film so easily today. And the software uh, required to edit that film or create the visual effects or sound effects for that film or music for that film are, are you know, so uh, inexpensive that um, you know, you can you can just jump right in. Now, having said that, working with others and learning how to work with others, film is a collaborative effort, and you're working with large teams, particularly on the production side. You know, you could have 150 people or 200 people on a set, and you've got to know how to work with them and all the different you know moving parts involved. So going to film school and taking a practical, you know, sort of production and post-production course is going to help you immensely uh, because a lot of questions will be answered, uh, you know, from, from a technical standpoint. Um, and again, you have an opportunity to study other things like, you know, literature and, and art and, and things like that. So, I think you would really come to the industry with a more well-rounded, uh, you know, sort of outlook on, on things. I, I didn't graduate initially from college, but uh, I, I continued to go on and take uh, classes at night. And even in between films, uh, I, I went back and I studied art history and things like that. So... I say keep learning, you know, uh, no matter what you're doing, uh, and and all of that will contribute to to your um, your instincts and your perspective as a as a filmmaker. Larry, do you think then that that third eye can be taught? Do you feel that talent can, in some way, be extrapolated, shared, and taken in and used by another party? Or are simply people who are born with it and people born without? Well, I think I think people. Uh, there are certain people that are born with gifts of uh, of certain um, you know certain 
types of artistic gifts or, or otherwise. Um, but I, I do believe in, in Gladwell's theory of 10,000 hours. You can kind of work at things and, and become an expert at, at them. Uh, I mean, in 10,000 hours, I might learn how to play the piano pretty good, but I won't have the gift that Mozart had. Uh, I, I think that <laughs> in our capitalist society, uh, anybody can pretty much learn how to be good enough to earn a living at something after working at it for a fairly uh, you know, extended period of time and really being committed to it. But having said that, I do believe that there are people born with extraordinary gifts. Um, we, we, we see them every day, and, uh, and we're, we're astonished by them. And uh, I don't know the, the, the why, rhyme or reason of why that happens, but uh, I guess that's just the way it is. Do you feel, then, we overdo the word genius? Everyone lately seems to have had some sort of epiphanal moment where they're born as geniuses. There yes, was I one Wells. I don't see many. Yes, I, 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 I absolutely think we overdo the word genius, yes. Uh, especially in the film industry, uh, you know, because uh, it's, it's full, you know, it has to, uh, it's full of marketing and hyperbole and, uh, you know, it's the greatest thing since sliced bread. But that's just all marketing, you know, kind of baloney and... Uh, you know there are there are few geniuses and 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 one person's genius might be another person's person's you know idiot so i guess uh you know like the you know like the man said when he kissed the cow's ass it's just a matter of taste <laughs> <laughs> there aren't many follow up questions to that <laughs> We're within uh, two minutes of what has been an enlightening segment, Larry. I'm wondering if, in point of fact, and I may have to stop you in your answer to go into the second break, if you could just uh, extrapolate or explain basically the difference between an editor and an assistant film editor. Sure. Um, you know, an assist uh, a film editor is the person who um, works quite closely with the director uh, from sometimes before the, 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 the shooting starts, uh, they, they go through the script with them and, uh, they talk about the vision that the director has for the film. And then the editor starts editing when they start shooting most often and edits, assembles the film or does the editor's cut while they're in production and then works with the director and ultimately the producers and the studio to finish the film from a creative uh, point of view. Um, the assistant editor uh, is um, much more of a technical uh, right-hand person to the editor. Uh, they are managing and organizing all of the film that gets shot, all of the visual effects that are created uh, or need to be created, all the elements that make up those visual effects and um, they're tracking all of the material to make sure that uh, when the film is finished, it can be assembled uh, in, in its, in its final form. Uh, however, um, quite often 
an assistant editor will be able to work closely with an editor, sometimes before the director comes in or sometimes while the director's there. And they'll start really picking up the, the subtleties of... Larry, if I may, we're about to enter the time limit for the second break. I wonder if you'd please okay. hold that thought. We'll be right back. Seldom said, You're my welcome. name is Robert. You're listening to a podcast from LIU Studios. If you like what you're hearing, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to this show on your podcast app of choice. For more of our programs or to support LIU Studios, visit wcwp.org. This is Seldom Said with Robert Amato. Welcome back. The program is Seldom Said. Our special guest, Mr. Larry Jordan, Larry, this has been a really informative and interesting discussion. I'm reminded of uh, that Shakespearean statement in one of his sonnets where he said, A kiss goodnight is marvelous, but it, it's so quick. In point of fact, uh, I wonder if you would continue with your discussion of assistant editing and editing, and then I'd like to go into the program that you and an associate have developed to teach the skill Okay. Well, um, I was starting to talk about um, when, when an assistant gets the opportunity to work with the editor, um, they can, you know, often really start picking up some of the subtleties of, of the craft, uh, seeing how an editor works with the director. Uh, this actually was something that was much more uh, available to assistant editors when we were working on 35mm film. And that was because of just the physicality of the film. We, we, we didn't have to send it over a network. We had to pick it up often in a film box and bring it into the, the editor's room and quite often look for little frames or trims, as they were called. And um, you would really spend time and, and quite often get the editor's point of view about what they were doing in the scene and their relationship with the director and how they felt about this, that, and the other. It was a much more kind of an in interactive experience. Today, we're much more siloed uh, as, as digital uh, workers. And quite often, I might not see my assistant for the entire day uh, because I, I will be texting them over WhatsApp and asking them questions that way. Um, however, I encourage my, my assistants to, um, you know, to participate in the process when, it, when it's appropriate um, and, and we have the opportunity. Um, and, and I also encourage my assistants to, uh, to take the opportunity to cut some scenes themselves when, when the time is right. Uh, that's how you learn how to become an editor. Uh, reflecting back to what we were talking about before, you do it. And uh, obviously when you're working on a feature film for a major studio or, you know, uh, you know, a network, you're working with pretty, you know, pretty quality material. You've got a lot of coverage and, and you can really kind of sink your teeth into it. So although the, edit, uh, the assistant editor's role is, is quite technical, there are a lot of opportunities to kind of flex their creative muscles uh, especially these days, because the editor is so busy these days with the volume of film that is that is shot because of digital, because there's no costs involved with developing and printing the film. 
we as editors are getting so much more to material to work with that almost all of our time is is taken up just by trying to wade through the material and 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 carve and carve a story out of it if we could then begin discussing what you've done which i find really innovative the idea of bringing the techniques into someone's television room can you discuss master the workflow i'd be happy to and thanks for asking about it um all of the crafts you know have sometimes been accused of being you know an old boys club uh and and for years you know they they actually were they were not just an old boys club i mean there were many uh women film editors in fact many pioneers were 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 female however uh the the ability to learn the craft the ability to really see what happens in a film editing room still to this day is a mystery to so many people and um and when I was young I, I, and starting out, I took a course at UCLA, UCLA Extension called Editing for the Apprentice and Assistant Editor. And they really kind of, it was two veteran editors, and they really kind of walked you through what really happens in an editing room. And it was very sort of, you know, concrete and they had been there, and they, they they told war stories, as well as teaching us the technical, you know, information about film. Um, we felt that uh, my my former assistant Richard Sanchez and I felt that was missing in, in this day and age. Um, you can take all kinds of courses, you can you can watch all kinds of YouTube videos, but how it works in an actual film editing room, feature film editing room for a, for a, a television network or a, a major film studio is still a mystery. Uh, people don't want to talk about it for a number of reasons. And um, I don't know whether it's protecting their job or being afraid to, you know, reveal a secret or what have you. But I think it's hindered the uh, editing craft in general uh, in terms of gaining respect and, and, and you know, people having an awareness of what we actually do. I mean, there are so many different types of editors. There are film editors, picture editors, there are sound editors, there are music editors, there are visual effects editors, um, there are assistant editors, there are assistant visual effects editors. I mean, it goes on and on. Some, some film crews on bigger films, excuse me, some film crews on bigger films can be quite large. Um, and, you know, Young people coming out of school or people wanting to enter the industry sometimes have no idea of all the different kinds of opportunities that are available to them. So what we did was we created this course and we made it available online. Um, it's, it's 14 hours of, of, of material. It's broken into six modules and 32 lessons. And we really take the student from before he uh, or she even gets the job uh, and they and before they start shooting to their first meeting with their editor all the way through the different processes and tasks that will be required of them throughout the post-production process to final finishing and delivering to the studio 
And, you know, Richard, uh, who actually teaches the class, is, is, is really one of the top-notch uh, people in town. And he, he actually uh, just recently got a, a bumped up to visual effects editor on George Clooney-produced uh, Catch-22 for Hulu. Um, and Richard really gives a, a very, very detailed description of every uh, skill and task required of an assistant editor on either feature films or television shows. Um, because they've become almost the same, uh, because of streaming there, there aren't the same kind of, uh, um, differences that there once were. And, um, you know, he and I, you know, we created an outline together and then he recorded the course and then we worked on each segment, uh, together and we edited it, uh, and, um, we put it out there and the response has just been phenomenal. There are so many people uh, coming uh, into the industry from so many places. We've, we've, uh, we have students in over 35 countries around the world, and we wanted to put it online so people can access it at any time, because, you know, that seems to be a real issue these days, is people are already working um, or in school or what have you. Uh, so, again, like I said, this, the response has been really phenomenal. And we're going to continue to develop additional courses and refine this one. And, um, and you know, it's been a thrill because passing this on, uh, this craft on to, you know, to other people and, and, and newcomers to the, to the industry is, is, is tremendously gratifying. And, uh, you know, it's always so exciting to see people, uh, who are excited about about the craft like yourself? Um, you know, it's a weird little animal, and um, <laughs> and it's it's nice when you find that you're you're not the only one who loves it. This is true. This is certainly true. Taking that a step further, then, uh, with your creation of an internet community, speaking of twopop.com and Final Cut Pro. Do you ultimately see this as a self-perpetuating device where individuals will have learned and they in turn will add something and then share? Well, that would be great. I would love that. I would love if, if it had an element of that. Um, I mean, I think that's kind, of, that's kind of the nature of the Internet itself. Uh, and... And there is an element of that already in our um, in our groups, our, our private and public groups, where we get to to talk to people and you know answer their questions and and give feedback when when asked. Um, but entirely self perpetuating, I'm not sure. Um, you know, because what are sort of unique. Uh, unique selling proposition, if you will, is, is that we're looking for actual professionals who have been through the trenches and, you know, and dealt with films of every shape and size to talk about their experiences in the actual crafts and, you know, portions of crafts that we're, we're teaching. 
You know what I mean? So uh, we don't necessarily want people who just are experts at a piece of software, so to speak. We want people who also have the sort of environmental, um, you, you know, experience of of working on a film and dealing with the uh, the problems that, that come up and solving those problems. This then, uh, to underline what you just said, is not a field for dilettantes. You know, that's funny because I was speaking to a group yesterday and I, I said that exact thing. Uh, it's absolutely not. And, and, and you know, uh, sometimes you see people online in groups and, you know, they talk about the hardships of, uh, of working in post-production or production. And, you know, I don't want to seem like a hard ass or anything, but... Um, you know, this isn't for the faint of heart. Uh, this is a very demanding uh, career, and uh, I, you almost want to say it's uh, it's an avocation. <laughs> You're called to it, and um, there are not regular hours. It's not a it's not a corporate kind of job. Uh, and then there's you know the freelancing aspect of it, where you can be off for months at a time or, uh, things like that. So you, you really have to love it and you really have to be dedicated to it. And if you're, you're not ready for that kind of, uh, lifestyle, uh, then you should think, uh, think twice about, about committing to it because there are a lot, uh, easier ways to make a living. <laughs> I am wondering, uh, and we're within four minutes of the end of what has been a marvelous program. Perhaps we can do it again, Larry. I'd love to. Your future plans, you've done so much. Whence do you go from here? Well, um, I'm really interested in continuing to develop, uh, on a personal level, my own sort of uh, artistic uh, sensibilities, uh, I've recently bought a new digital camera and I'm taking a lot of pictures with it and I'm, I'm teaching myself Adobe, uh, Lightroom, which I think is a fascinating program. Uh, I want to spend more time with m my youngest son. Uh, my, my other children are, are grown and sort of maybe spend a little more time with him as he's, uh, only 11, it'll be 12 in October and kind of nurture him in what he wants to do, you know, with his time and life and school and things like that. Um, I'm, I'm looking forward to continuing to cut films as they come up. And, um, I have a very good relationship with the director that I'm working with right now, Michael Titus. This is our our third film together. And, you know, if Mike comes up with another film that he wants me to cut, it would be a pleasure. Um, but I'm kind of, you know, uh, I'm not as chomping at the bit as I used to be when I was younger. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm trying to uh, enjoy the fruits of my labor a little bit more. Uh, but continue to try to grow and learn and stay creative. And, uh, you know, I'm very interested in what some of these people are doing uh, on, on in places like YouTube. There are some tremendously talented creators out there that are not only making films, but teaching about how to make those films and, and things like that. So, you know, I'm certainly toying with the idea about 
about maybe making my own films uh, and and you know those kinds of things and and continuing to grow uh, all of that contributing to continue to grow um, mass of the workflow as a company. If you were to click your heels, snap your fingers, close your eyes, and go two stars to the right, is there a film and a topic you would love to approach? You would love to make. There are so many, Robert. Um, you know, uh, and I think about ideas like that every day. In fact, I was talking with the director yesterday. We were recutting some music with our music editor, and um, somehow we got on uh, the topic of of the director's high school and college experience of being a wrestler. And he was telling all kinds of stories and things like that. And I said, gosh, that would be a fascinating documentary. You know, just just the, the high school wrestler experience. So, you know, it's like sometimes we get lost because it's such a big view. What should we make a film about? What should we write a story about? What should we take a picture of? And sometimes the world seems so overwhelming. But you know what? If you just drill down into these little stories, if you just draw a picture of the bricks on a wall, not the whole wall, you know, you can really come up with 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 some some great artwork or material or whatever. So um, there are just so many stories that I think need to be told, and 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 that's one of the reasons why I'm I'm hoping to train more. Uh, more people entering or wanting to enter the the content creation business, I guess as they're calling it now, about how to do that and do it myself. This will be marvelous. I'll be waiting by the window. <laughs> I wonder now if we can allow, and I don't often do this, uh, can I allow my guest to bid goodbye to his audience and leave the door open for next time? A few well, last absolutely. It's been a thrill to be here with you, and I'm and I'm honored. And and your class, your, your questions uh, have been so insightful and and interesting. And uh, I would love to do it again. And I'd I'd love to be uh, I'd love to participate with your audience again. Marvelous. The program has been seldom said. Special guest has been Larry Jordan, WCWP LIU. Be with us again.